here. It's good to see you. I hope you had a great Christmas. And how many think it's going to be a good year at Christ Fellowship 2016? Four of you. One more time. How many of you think this is going to be a terrific year? Great. Hey, uh, when we kick off a new year, I like to, if I remember, remind you uh, to pick up a table talk. And, uh, you know, I have been subscribing. I was just thinking during worship, I've been subscribing to this little devotional for over 25 years now. And I'm only 32 years old, and I got a a good start when I was young with my reading habits. So um, it's a tough crowd this morning. This, this month, uh, the subject is apologetics. If you had not, not had a chance to read this yet, these are um, top-tiered pastors and theologians that write amazing articles in this little magazine. Also, there is a, a, a program to read through the Bible in a year, and so I commend it to you um, highly. I hope you take advantage of that. I want to have you turn this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. And as you make your way to Deuteronomy chapter 32, I would have you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word this morning. Just one verse this morning, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. This is the word of the Lord. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Father, we uh, come humbly today. We come in a spirit of contrition. We come uh, into your presence and recognize that you are a, a righteous God. God, I pray that as we learn more, about your righteous character, that you would reveal qualities in us that need uh, transformation, that need renovation. God, I pray that you would do a mighty work in, in many today as a result of our time in your word. We hold your word in the highest sense. It is the highest authority in our lives. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is without error in the original autographs. It is abundantly clear for us to read uh, the truth in it. And so I pray that you would encourage your people today as we spend time, as we linger, uh, examining this verse and many others and exploring the righteousness of God. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. It is a fairly well-known fact, at least the Encyclopedia Britannica has um, said this for many, many years now, that Jonathan Edwards is America's greatest intellectual. Many over the years have argued that Jonathan Edwards is the greatest mind that America ever produced. Born in 1703, Went to be with his Lord and Savior on 1758, not too many months after he accepted the call to serve as what is now uh, Princeton University. Jonathan Edwards, in the prime of his life, said the following. He said, it is just with God eternally to cast off 
and destroy sinners. I'm going to ask you this morning, what is your initial reaction to that statement? Your first reaction, if you're like many Americans, may be one of shock. Your reaction to Edward's words may be a reaction that is filled with horror. You may be perplexed. You may have questions. You may wonder, is that really the God that is promoted and advanced in the Bible? Some of you may hear those words from Jonathan Edwards and the words make you upset. Wherever you are this morning, whether you accept the words or whether you reject them, I want to ask, what is the reason for your reaction? What is it that drives your reaction? Is your reaction rooted in emotions? Is your reaction rooted or grounded in cultural norms? Is your reaction rooted in personal preference like it is for many these days? Or is your reaction rooted and grounded in sacred scripture? And if it is grounded and rooted in sacred scripture, I think you will find in very short order that Edwards was right on target. That it is just with God eternally to cast off and destroy sinners. This morning, as we continue in our study on the attributes of God, I would have you t- to consider together the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. And specifically, to make this very practical, I would encourage you to compare and contrast your sin and my sin with the righteousness of God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says this. We have all become unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, our our sin, like the wind, take us away. In the very next verse, in verse 7, we read, There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses him to take hold of you, For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. In one recent book, R.C. Sproul says it like this. We assume, and I want you to put bold letters around that word assume. Italicize the word assume. Put them in large print. We assume, Dr. Sproul says, That our works are good enough to pass the scrutiny of God at the final tribunal. And we do this despite the apostolic warning that, as Paul the Apostle said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's very interesting as I sat with a few of the elders this morning and we got engaged in a a conversation as we do from week to week. uh, Two of the elders shared stories about how friends had uttered the words that basically said, when I die, I'm pretty sure that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Now, those elders had no idea where we were going this morning with the message, but I find it very interesting. I find it to be ironic that all these things come together on this day when the word of the Lord says that by the works of the law, no flesh 
shall be justified. The psalmist said in Psalm 130, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The only way an unrighteous person can escape the day of God's holy wrath and vengeance is that he or she stands justified. The only way an unrighteous person can stand in the presence of a holy God is to receive the very righteousness of God, which only comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Never grow weary of hearing these words. Never grow tired of of hearing the message of the gospel. Never become uh, uh, apathetic when we hear that it is only through the cross of Christ that we can stand justified. As we've shared in many sermons in times past, the, the cry, the call of the Protestant reformers was this, how can an unrighteous person stand in the presence of a righteous God? How can a sinner stained with guilt, a wretched sinner who is plagued by a guilty conscience, how can I stand in the presence of a holy God? Well, once again, the only way we can do such a thing The only way we can stand in the presence of a holy God is to receive the righteousness of God, which comes through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to spend some time this morning reflecting on the righteousness of God and trust that this morning will be of encouragement to you that these moments together will serve you well. So we begin with this fundamental reality. God is righteous. I want to define the righteousness of God quickly and then move to a a more comprehensive description. First, I want you to see that God's righteousness is his holiness applied to relationships. God's righteousness is his holiness applied to relationships. Psalm chapter 4 verse 1 says, answer me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. I want to build on this definition and have you see, secondly, that righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice are derived from the same Greek word, which means just or right. When we say that God is a just God, that is identical to saying that God is a righteous God. It's very interesting, and I, uh, it, it escaped my attention, but as I titled this message several months ago and sent it to Jason for the worship team to, to pray over and, and determine what songs would be uh, played today in the morning service, I had titled the sermon, The Justice of God. And this morning, while we were worshiping, I happened to look down at my order of service, and I noticed it was titled, The Justice of God. Well, I have since changed it to The Righteousness of God. Guess what? Nothing's changed. When we say that God is just, we say that God is a God of righteousness. One final descriptor to help with the definition. The Greek word means this. It is the perfect agreement between God's nature and his acts. Righteousness 
tells us it is the perfect agreement of his nature and his acts. You would say it this way in our culture. There's a man who does what he says. There's a man who practices what he preaches. There's a woman who lives what she believes. The Greek word for righteousness is the perfect agreement between God's nature and his acts. You might say it this way, that justice is the way that God delegates his righteousness. Justice is the way that God delegates his righteousness. Let me move to a description and take it one step further. And in your notes, you'll see a section that we have entitled the foundation. And we want to entitle that foundation that God is Righteous. If you have your Bible open to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, would you walk through with me and look at this uh, uh, PowerPoint uh, uh, portrait and see the, the beauty and the depth of this verse? We see six things that emerge in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. We see that he is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. All his ways are righteous. That God is faithful, which is to say that God never, never, never does wrong. That will be a theme that you'll hear several times this morning, that God never does wrong. You say, but pastor, what about? But what about? My response is the scripture's response. God never does wrong wrong. Finally, we see in this verse in Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 that God is upright. You might put it this way, that he consistently demonstrates integrity. He consistently demonstrates integrity. And so just as every good building begins with a foundation, so we too must remember that God is altogether righteous. And any deviation from this course, any deviation from the biblical truth that God is righteous will send us in erroneous directions. When we begin to subtly deviate from not only the righteousness of God, but any of the other attributes that we have discovered thus far in this series, when we deviate from those attributes, we begin to embrace a portrait of God that is altogether unbiblical. This is a personal concern that I have had for for many years now. And the the concern continues to grow in the church. As I, I read books from professing pastors who reject the biblical portrait of God. It's upsetting. It's discouraging. And it's time for we, the people of God, to make this resolution. And we'll hear more about this later, as I shared with the Veritas class this morning. As a a collective people of God, can we resolve together? I will never raise the white flag of surrender. Would anyone do that with me? We will never see the white flag of surrender flying high above Christ's fellowship. Because as I see it around the world, the white flag of surrender is unfurled and flying madly In front of many churches, as many pastors and Christ followers have walked away from the biblical portrait of God. You see, whenever you are inclined to accuse God of injustice, remember this. 
God is righteous. Yeah, but pastor, what about God is righteous? And remember this, injustice is inconsistent with the character of God. Whenever you're inclined to to wag a finger at God, whenever you have this desire to, to point an accusatory finger at God, remember this, that God is altogether righteous. Could I be very honest and transparent? Because I need to... To, to jump into the pews and, and sit with you and imagine the, the kinds of things that may be rolling around in your minds and, and pressing upon your hearts. What about 9-11? What about ISIS? What about the Holocaust? What about the problem of pain? What about the problem of evil? What about cancer? What about Alzheimer's disease? What about Parkinson's? A man who has been very, very influential in my life, Dr. Wayne Grudem, the author of Systematic Theology, that many of the men in Christ Fellowship have read a book almost a thousand pages long, was just diagnosed a few days ago with Parkinson's disease. I would urge you to read Dr. Grudem's words as he has been diagnosed at a fairly young age, with this horrible disease, and to see that his response is one of God-centeredness. That Dr. Grudem will confess that God is righteous. He will never appoint an accusatory finger at God because he knows that God is altogether righteous. When you are tempted to tell God that what he has done is not fair, Remember, God is righteous. The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. I want to have you turn your attention now to what we have called the framework. The framework as we take this one step further. And the first thing I would have you to see is that the law of God... The Old Testament law of God points to his perfection. Psalm 19 verses 7 to 9 tell us that if you would turn there with me. Psalm chapter 19 beginning in verse 7. Yesterday I visited with a pastor friend of mine from Hood River and he was sharing about a message he preached not too long ago. And he had the congregation turn to a passage of scripture. Not his congregation, another congregation. And he said it was the strangest thing. He didn't hear the ruffling of pages. And so he asked someone later, what's the deal? He asked the congregation to turn to Psalm 19 and he heard no pages ruffling. And some of you are anticipating that response is going to be, oh, we're a Kendall congregation. We're an iPad congregation. That's not the response he received. The response was, oh, we don't bring our Bibles to this church. What's the reason for that? I don't know. Is it apathy? Is it because all the scriptures are posted on PowerPoint? Whatever the reason, none of them are good. Is we need to be a people of the book. We need to be a people of God's word. Psalm chapter 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is what? It's perfect. 
reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. See, God commands only what is right, and that which will therefore have a a positive effect, as verse 11 indicates, upon every believer who obeys. You see, when we obey God, the results are always good. When we submit to the authority of Scripture, the results are always pleasant. Now, that does not mean we will escape persecution. That does not mean that we will always escape terrorism. But when we obey the word of the living God, the results will be pleasant. Moreover, verse 11 says, by them is your servant warned in keeping them. That is the word of God. There is great Reward. Secondly, I would have you to see that the righteousness of God means that his actions always agree with the law he has established. The righteousness of God means that his actions always agree with the law he has established. Jeremiah chapter 9 verse 24 says, Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You see, because God is a God of righteousness, measuring up to the standard of his law, because his actions always agree with the law he has established, we can trust him. We know that God will always come through in the clutch. We know that that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. Therefore, we do not need to be afraid to enter into a relationship with him. Many of you have been hurt in relationships. A man has hurt a woman. A woman has hurt a man. Something happened when you're in college or beyond your college years where where you were hurt in a relationship. But we know that as we come in faith, simple faith to God, that he always has our best interests in mind. He is a God of righteousness. Number three, would you see with me that since God is righteous, he must therefore act righteously. Since God is righteous, he must therefore act righteously. I would have you hold that thought and come with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, as we move ever closer to the timeless message of the gospel. Let's begin actually in verse 23, a verse that we all know very well. Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You will recall from Isaiah chapter 43, the reason for our existence. Why was I created? Why were you created? Why were you born? This is a question that that 
pulsates on the American conscience. Why do I say that? Because whether you agree or disagree with what Rick Warren has stated in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, the book sold millions and millions and millions and millions of copies. The last I heard, the book sold so many copies. Again, agree or disagree with what Dr. Warren has written. It has sold so many copies that he no longer draws a salary from his church. I heard him say once that he made so much money on this book that he could buy an island. That wasn't to boast. That was to say this, that he, he put his finger on the pulse of something that was happening in America. Americans want to know, why am I here? It's the most basic worldview question anyone could ever ask. Why am I here? Why was I born? Isaiah 43 says the answer is this, to glorify the living God. Why am I here? To glorify God. Romans 3 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. But Romans 3 tells us we don't do that, that we are sinners by nature and choice, that we fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation By his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, one of the things that we learn in the gospel is not only that God freely forgives anyone who trusts in Jesus. The converse is this, is that because God is righteous, sin must always be dealt with appropriately. You see, God, God simply cannot put sin under the carpet. My pen represents sin. God, it's, it's, it's inconsistent with his character to hide the sin and not deal with the sin. You say, make it practical. When someone hurts you and they refuse to ask for your forgiveness and you say, I I just forgave them, even though they didn't ask for my forgiveness. Do you know what you do? You obliterate the cross. You say, but I thought we're supposed to forgive. We always stand ready to forgive. I'm sure that many of us have people who have hurt us in years past as the collective people of God. We need to all stand ready to forgive so that when you hear that knock on the door and that cruel man or that cruel woman walk into your house and they say, do you remember back in 1989? Do you remember back in 1997? Do you remember back in 2013? Do you remember when I hurt you? That... You've already thought it through that you forgive them. The transaction is complete. But you see, when when we forgive and we don't give the person the courtesy to say, I was wrong, please forgive me. What do we do? We we hide the work of the cross. And so God simply can't 
tuck our sin under the carpet. What does he do? He is righteous. Therefore, he always deals with sin. And he deals with it appropriately. So verse 23 through 25 tell us this. Jesus became our propitiation. The NIV says that he was our atoning sacrifice. The one who appeased and satisfied the wrath of God against sin. When you see the word propitiation, it only appears four times in the New Testament. It's one of the most important New Testament words we could ever become familiar with. Remember this, that Jesus absorbs the almighty wrath of God when he dies on the cross. But he not only absorbs the white hot wrath of God when he dies on the cross, he affirms the infinite love of the father. For his people. Jesus is our propitiation. Christ's sacrificial death satisfied the demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. What was Jesus' motivation? Jesus' motivation was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. John MacArthur says it like this. The wisdom of God's plan allowed him to punish Jesus in the place of sinners and thereby justify those who are guilty without compromising his justice. You see how it works is God can't simply say, okay, Evan, you're off the hook. Okay, Grace, you're off the hook. I forgive you. No, a transaction must take place. And so Jesus, he cools down the white hot wrath of God and he affirms his love for the people of God. Look with me at the fallout. There are two very important things that we need to understand here. And that is that God responds appropriately. Since he is righteous, he responds appropriately to both the wicked and the people of God. How does he do it? Well, Our righteous God, first of all, demonstrates what you might refer to as retributive justice. You hear the word retribution in that term retributive. Our righteous God demonstrates retributive justice, which involves inflicting penalties and is an expression of the wrath of God. Let me read several scriptures that bear this out. Psalm 711, God is a righteous judge, that much we have established, and a God who feels indignation every day. Psalm 9, 7 and 8, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice and judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Psalm 96, 10 to 13, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes and he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people in his faithfulness. What I fear is we are neglecting. We are neglecting the biblical reality that God judges sin. 
But we've become such a PC culture that I believe some pastors are even afraid to say, God will judge your sin. And if you refuse to turn from your sin, you will perish in hell for all eternity. Isaiah 5.16 says, The Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Paul the Apostle was unafraid. He was unashamed to not only declare the gospel, but to to declare that God will indeed punish sin. He said in Romans 2, 5, and 6, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Well, the fallout also involves another kind of justice. It not only involves retributive justice, the righteous God that we worship in Scripture demonstrates remunerative justice. Remunerative justice involves, very simply, the issuing forth of rewards. And so you can remember it like this. Because God is righteous, he will punish sin and he will pay it forward. He will punish the wicked and he will reward all those who are justified. Psalm 31.1 says, In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Never let me be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Psalm 143, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. Psalm 143.11, for your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. Psalm 119, verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. The bottom line today is this. And this is where we ended last or uh, two weeks ago in our study on the mercy of God. Charles Hodge says, God never condemns the innocent. I want to have you think about these different phrases in this sentence. God never condemns the innocent. That should bring us a great amount of joy. That should bring a great amount of satisfaction that, that, that there won't be anyone any innocent person who will ever be condemned. God never condemns the innocent, nor clears the guilty. So that person that hurts you, that person who is not a believer, that person who will never ask for your forgiveness, there will be a day of reckoning. God never clears the guilty because one day it will be revealed for what it is. The sinner will be reckoned with. 
God never condemns the innocent or clears the guilty. Neither does he ever punish with undue severity. And so let us cast aside any language or logic that accuses God of being unjust. Let us cast aside any logic or language that accuses God of being unfair. Why? Because God is utterly righteous. If I were to ask, how many of you have ever said to God, that's not fair? My suspicion would be that the vast majority of us, and perhaps all of us, have at least one time said, God, that's not fair. Remember that God is altogether righteous. We can be assured that every decision that comes from the living God is a decision that is motivated by a righteous God. But remember this as we close. Since God is altogether righteous, sin must always be dealt with appropriately. That is why Jonathan Edwards could utter those rather dogmatic words that it is just with God eternally to cast off and destroy sinners. As we move even closer to the the foot of the cross, here is what we learn today at that cross. We learn this critical lesson that everyone who trusts Jesus Everyone who puts his or her faith in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they receive forgiveness for their sin. That they also receive the very righteousness of God. But in turn, everyone who rejects God, everyone who rejects the Lord Jesus Christ, will be judged eternally by a righteous God. This morning, we can thank God that he has made provision for us, that he has made provision for, for my salvation, for your salvation through the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all because Jesus was and is and always will be righteous. This morning, where do you stand with this righteous God? As you come closer and closer to the foot of the cross, you say, Lord Jesus, I acknowledge that I have I have failed to glorify you as I ought. I have failed to bring glory to the great God of the universe, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do. I have chosen to live for for my glory. And today I realize maybe for the first time that that is an incredibly grievous sin in your sight. I come to the foot of the cross. I lay down my arms. I lay down my weapons. I lay down my objections. And I ask you, God of the universe, will you forgive me? I trust in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I will be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ, which is the essence of saving faith. For those of you who have come to the foot of the cross many, many years ago, and you were walking with God like Enoch walked with God, like Noah walked with God, like Joseph walked with God, like Paul the Apostle walked with God, like Peter walked with God, like John walked with God. Will you resolve as we move into this new year 
that I will be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. You see, the righteousness of God is an altogether positive message. It is a consuming message. It is a message that is brimming with joy. To know Jesus is to know joy. Will you be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you for making a way for sinners uh, to stand in your presence. We acknowledge that it is not because of anything we do. It is not because of how much uh, money we put in the offering plate. It is not because of what we do in ministry that we stand before a holy God because of Jesus. And we trust in his completed and, and sacrificial work on the cross. God, I pray that as we move into 2016, that this would be a year at Christ Fellowship where we are satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. May we learn the, the essence of saving faith. May our, our fears melt away. May our anxieties be put to rest. May our sin be cast aside as we run to the foot of the cross each day and ask for forgiveness, knowing that we have been delivered from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And one day we'll stand free of sin's very presence. For those who are not yet believers, God, I pray that you would do a work of grace in someone's heart today. That as they move closer to the foot of the cross, that they would acknowledge their sin and that they would trust in all that Jesus accomplished on the cross for them. That they would walk away from Christ's fellowship today, a new person, a converted person, a transformed person, a person with new perspective, new dreams, new goals, all of which are God-centered, all because of the work that Jesus performed for them on Calvary's cross. God, help us to remember that you are a righteous God, that you deal with sin appropriately, that you judge sin, that you reward Simple acts of faith, most notable when we trust the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, help us as we move into the new year to be faithful people of God, to refuse to raise the white flag of compromise. We refuse to surrender to the world, but we, we adamantly choose to surrender to Jesus and his authority. Amen.